This is Chapter 9 of Lilac Wine, the podcast. We are releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, so if you missed any of the previous episodes, please take a listen. I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, lilac wine. Chapter 9 Carl and Otto Springer, twins from Germany who wanted to strike it rich in America, founded Lily Springs in 1856. After failed attempts at saloon ownership, beer making, cattle raising, and even a brief stint as minstrel performers, the Springer brothers trekked out west to Dubuque, responding to an ad offering for sale land rich in mineral deposits. They purchased seven acres, some equipment, and started digging. The lead vein they discovered instantly brought moderate wealth to the brothers, and soon the town of Springer grew up around the mine. Unfortunately for the Springer, smelting was a process that they could not fully grasp, and after failing in that endeavor and almost losing their lives in a small furnace explosion, they ended up simply selling the raw ore they mined to a smelter in Dubuque who ran one of the five blast furnaces in the area. The lead mine brought prosperity to Springer for several years. Soon the town had an ice warehouse, a post office, a creamery, a lumber mill, and several businesses to support the families that had moved there. The mine ended up employing some 50 people in its heyday and became the object of attempted takeovers by rival mining companies. But the prosperity of the mine was not to last. Like so many mines in the area, the Springer mine penetrated the aquifer and quickly filled with water. Not wanting to buy expensive pumping equipment, the Springer brothers abandoned the mine, selling the deed to Charles Smithhouse, an entrepreneur newly arrived from the Albany area. Smithhouse saw potential in the waterlogged mine and set to build a steam pump to pull the water out and deliver it directly to the homes in the area, much like what was happening in the larger cities throughout the country. As a result, the town was renamed Lily Springs, and soon almost every resident had fresh water flowing directly into their houses. That was in 1888. 20 years before even the prestigious Hotel Julian in Dubuque had running water in every room of the hotel. Lily Springs was billed as an oasis of modernity in the country. Although most homes still used outdoor privies, many of the newer homes in Lily Springs had modern water closets and plumbing installed. Even so, the water business was not profitable for Smith House, and he went bankrupt the pump works taken over by the city. Gas came to Lily Springs before water, 
And even though electrical lines were strung up along the railroad using the existing telephone and telegraph poles, few houses were electrified by the summer of 1917. The only automobile service station in town was recently wired for electricity, and some farmers near the tracks purchased transformers and ran lines into their barns and homes. Other than that, few people saw a necessity for electricity, and many didn't trust it. The three street lamps at each tip of the town triangle were run off of gas and were lit most evenings by Tom Brooks, except during nights of a full moon. There was some vigorous debate at City Hall in recent years about changing the gas burners to incandescent electric lamps, but the discussions never resulted in any definitive decisions. And that was the problem with Lily Springs. It was trapped between the 19th and 20th centuries, between being an oasis of modernity and a throwback to another era. People began leaving Lily Springs, and the once vibrant small town grew smaller until not more than 70 homes remained occupied within the city limits. Those who stayed, however, were proud of their small town and its traditions. People like Ellie worked tirelessly to voice the virtues of Lily Springs and, despite Art's protestations, formed a small welcoming committee that summer to explore ways to advertise the charms of the city and bring in new, younger residents. Little did Robert know, as he boarded the 2.30 p.m. train on the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul line in downtown Dubuque, that Ellie and her small committee were preparing a welcoming party for him at the Lily Springs Depot. Ellie had closed the front counter at the pharmacy early, leaving her husband in charge of the back, and had met her compatriots on her front porch to make a welcome banner for the young bishop. They had even recruited the talents of some of the members of the Lily Springs Brass Band for the occasion. The Brass Band normally had five members, and four of them did double duty as the barbershop quartet. They mainly sang and performed only twice a year, at the annual Fourth of July picnic in the Town Triangle and the Christmas Gala. Unfortunately, their repertoire was limited to only patriotic songs and Christmas carols. Lily Springs was only 30 miles from Dubuque via railroad. The tracks north from Dubuque hugged the shore of the Mississippi River, providing excellent views of the waterway and the spectacular bluffs of the so-called driftless area of Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. This area was not flat, like the majority of the train ride from Chicago to the Mississippi, and Robert enjoyed the change of scenery. This was such a pleasant contrast from the steel, brick, and glass of Chicago. And it smelled differently, too. It had the same underlying musty river smell that one could find by the Chicago River, but minus the pungent odor of sewage and trash that inundated the downtown area. Not to even mention the stockyards, which, when the breeze was right, blanketed the loop in an indescribable odor of manure and slaughterhouse. Robert found himself cracking the window on the train and inhaling deeply. 
The train car was not crowded at all, and based on overheard conversations, most of the other passengers were headed to either Lansing or St. Paul. The conductor was surprised to find a passenger headed to Lily Springs, as the train rarely made stops there. Except for the one daily freight that unloaded provisions and mail, the depot at Lily Springs saw very little activity anymore. Passenger trains only stopped when needed. If there were a passenger waiting to board at the station, a large red flag would be hoisted above the depot so that the engineer would know to stop. As there was no ticket taker at the station, it was the job of the passenger to hoist the flag. Otherwise, the train wouldn't even slow down as it passed this town. Lily Springs, huh? The conductor said as he looked at Robert's ticket. We usually don't stop there, but in your case, we'll slow down just enough so that you can make the jump safely. Robert looked surprised. <laughs> just kidding, lad, the conductor said with a smile, handing back his punched ticket. Must be visiting some relative, I assume. No one travels to Lily Springs for a holiday or anything. Funeral, perhaps? Robert shook his head. Just visiting a relative. Ah, thought so. How long you staying? I'm not sure. The conductor smiled under his thick handlebar mustache. I bet I'll be seeing you again within two weeks' time. As he started to turn down the aisle to continue his rounds, he added with a chuckle, <laughs> Before you die of boredom, that is. Robert settled in his seat and watched the passing countryside. Paddle boats and barges navigated the river, Small towns dotted the landscape on both sides of the Mississippi, the white steeples of churches extending above all the other buildings. The train made short stops at several stations along the way, Eagle Point, Fountain Hill, Mud Lake, Peru, Spex Ferry, Wapiton. The conductor came back into Robert's car. Next stop, son, he said. Robert gathered his suitcase as the train began slowing down. Even before the train stopped with a whoosh of steam, Robert heard the music, or at least he thought it was music. He couldn't quite make out the tune, but knew it was coming from outside. And it was vaguely familiar. The conductor was waiting by the door to the car. Looks like you're expected, he said as Robert stepped into the sunlight and out onto the platform. This is the most people I've ever seen at this depot. There was music, all right. A small band composed of several middle-aged to elderly men stood on the platform. Robert first noticed the large drum with the words Lily Springs written in a circle around the outer membrane. The man playing the drum was small, too small for the instrument, it seemed, and save for the bald head, could easily be mistaken for a child. A musician with white hair blowing breathlessly into a trombone looked as if he was going to pass out at any moment. The other two men were puffing into coronets, one keeping time clumsily with the stomp of his right foot. Robert started to walk away, not realizing that the band was there, in fact, for him. He didn't even notice the large white sign being held up by a group of women with large smiles standing next to the band. "'Welcome to Lily Springs, Robert!' One of the women called out. Robert barely heard the voice over the music. When he stopped and turned, it was then he recognized the tune. 
It was the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Or at least he thought so. Excuse me, Robert said, and that was when he saw the banner. Welcome, Robert Bishop, it read. We're your welcoming committee, stated Ellie loudly with a smile. She walked forward and held out her gloved hand. My name is Elizabeth Peterson. She was practically screaming over the music. But people call me Ellie. Robert shook her hand ever so slightly. The band finished the song with a flare, and the women applauded wildly. There was nothing but large smiles. Except for the man with the trombone, he rested the instrument on his foot and leaned out of breath against the post. We think you'll just love our small town, stated Ellie. Everybody here is family, and we just wanted to greet you in a right, proper way. Thank you, said Robert, not knowing what else to say. And any relative of Art's is a relative of all of us, right, ladies? The several ladies proclaimed their agreements, all with wide smiles that Robert found disconcerting. No one ever smiled this much in Chicago unless, of course, it was in a saloon or at a rally sponsored by an alderman seeking re-election. "'I'm supposed to meet Art at the post office,' said Robert at last. "'I assume it's that way?' Robert turned his head in the direction of the dirt road that led slightly uphill from the station. "'Oh, yes, that's the direction to Lily Springs. We'll show you the way. That's why we're here.' Robert smiled uncomfortably, not sure of what to make of the situation. He never liked being the center of attention, especially from people he didn't know. Then, a glimmer of light caught his eye as an automobile appeared in the distance, kicking up plumes of dust. It was speeding toward the station. Oh no, stated Ellie, almost under her breath. She quickly gathered the ladies together around Robert as the rumble of the automobile became louder. Pay no attention to the automobile. We'll show you the way. Come, come. They led Robert down the steps as the car turned into the front of the station, its horn blaring loudly before coming to a stop. It was a 1913 modified Ford Model T, painted a dark green with a closed cab and a wooden flatbed. It shuddered a little as the engine came to a halt. Billy Mays stood from the car. Sorry I'm late, he stated. The women were visibly annoyed at his presence. Uh, that's okay, Billy, Ellie stated. We were just going to escort Mr. Bishop here to the post office. The 17-year-old smiled. Art heard what you ladies were doing and sent me here to pick him up, he stated as he jumped from the vehicle. My name is Billy Miles, he said to Robert, holding out his hand. Why don't you throw your suitcase in the back and I'll have you to the post office in no time. Art's expecting you. That's not necessary, Billy, Ellie protested. I'm just doing what Art asked me to do, Mrs. Peterson. Robert wasn't quite sure what to do. He didn't want to offend Ellie, but the thought of walking into town with her and the ladies was not at all appealing. I think, he said in the most sincere voice he could muster, I'd better go right to the office. I don't want to keep Art waiting. He may need me to do something. Billy gave him a quick slap on the back as he turned to the car, grabbing Robert's suitcase on the way. Ellie tried hard to hide her disappointment. Or was it anger? It was a pleasure, 
Meeting you, Mr. Bishop, she stated. Thank you for the wonderful greeting, said Robert. And that song was wonderful, too, he added, as the members of the band started filing past the truck. They had already packed up their instruments and were making it up the road. Except for the trombone player, he was now sitting on the steps of the depot, still trying to catch his breath. Robert turned and pulled himself up into the passenger side of the truck. I'm sure we'll be seeing more of each other, he tipped his hat to the ladies and nodded to the gentlemen in the band. Before he settled into his seat, however, Billy appeared from the back of the car. I need you to crank it, he said. Robert didn't know what he was talking about at first, but then realized he was talking about the car. Robert knew very little about cars. He had only driven in one once when he went out for a delivery for one of the pianos sold at his uncle's shop. He had seen plenty of cars in the city and, on more than one occasion, been almost run down by them on the street. But that was the extent of his experiences with automobiles. Billy realized this and led him to the front of the car. I need you to crank this lever this way, but be careful. Cup the handle in your palm. You can get some more leverage by grabbing the fender with your other hand like this. He demonstrated the position and then pulled on the choke ring just below the radiator. When the engine starts, the handle will swing back quickly in the opposite direction. Make sure your hand is out of the way or it may break your wrist. Then hop in and we'll be on our way. As Robert waited for the signal from Billy, most of the ladies began following the band up the street. One woman stayed behind, cradling the trombone and waiting for the still-winded player. Crank it! yelled Billy. Robert pulled up on the handle. The car sputtered and then backfired, sounding a bit like gunfire. Robert jumped. He could hear one of the ladies exclaim, I hate that infernal machine. Try it again, said Billy as he adjusted the throttle and the spark control levers on the steering column. Robert turned the crank on a signal, and the same thing happened. The car shook violently and backfired a few more times. Let me try, Billy stated. He set the levers and came to the front, but his use of the crank brought them no closer to starting it. Shit, Billy stated, taking off his cap and wiping his forehead. I think I flooded the engine. He opened the hinged hood and, pulling a wrench from his back pocket, proceeded to remove a spark plug. I've been having problems with this truck. He wiped the end of the plug and quickly blew on it to remove some of the grime. After returning the plug to its proper place, he gave the crank another try. Nothing but loud pops and a shudder. Looks like we'll have to push it, he said at last. Are you kidding? said Robert. Up that hill? Yeah, it's not so bad. Once we get it to the top, we'll probably be able to start it. The two of them began pushing the car, struggling to turn it in the dirt. Once the car was properly aligned with the road, then came the arduous task of pushing it up the hill. The hill was not steep at all, but the thin tires slipped in the dry dirt as the two tried to gain some traction. Those old ladies are beating us. Robert observed about 10 minutes into the push, but not for long. That realization gave them an extra dollop of energy. The two young men were able to get those wheels turning and soon they had caught up to the small group. Ladies, said Billy as they came up alongside them. Robert smiled nervously. 
Ellie seemed to enjoy the spectacle, and the ladies suddenly picked up their pace. She turned, grinning dryly at Billy. A little harder, Billy said under his breath. Soon the two had pushed the car past the group to the top of the small incline. It was time to try again. This time the car sputtered to life. Billy adjusted the spark and the mixture control as Robert hopped into the car. Pulling on the throttle lever, the car lurched forward, sending Robert back into his seat, his head wrapping the rear window. Dust and pebbles from the tire shot towards the women who just appeared at the top of the crest. Billy whooped with joy and laughed. Woohoo! Wasn't that great? he said. Robert smiled out of courtesy, his hand caressing the dull pain at the back of his scalp. Although he couldn't hear what she said, Robert turned and caught a glimpse of Ellie, raising her fist through the dust and saying something that was probably not very nice. So this is our little town, yelled Billy over the roar of the engine as he spun the truck around the triangle, the tires sending up billowing clouds of dust. Not much to it, as the truck started its second loop around the center. Robert noticed that this little joyride was bringing glares from the several people who were going about their business in town, especially from an older woman who occupied a bench under the large oak tree by the statue. On the final circle, they passed Ellie, who was just opening the door to her pharmacy on the southeast corner of the triangle, her light dress now speckled with dirt. Billy pumped the bulb on the horn as he pulled up along the curb. Ellie paid them no heed as she slammed the door behind her. Here we are, said Billy. The post office was right next to the pharmacy. It was so small and nondescript that Robert hadn't even noticed it as they made their way around the square. The post office was empty of customers and the sound and smell of dogs permeated the air. Billy called out for Art and the three met in the back room. "'You do so resemble your father,' said Art upon first seeing Robert, the dog circling his feet, smelling Robert, and licking his hands. It was as if they recognized him as kin. "'I think they like you,' Art said. Robert wasn't too sure about the dogs. He had never had a dog as a pet, and these animals, although apparently friendly to him, still made him feel uncomfortable. Nervous, actually. He was always told not to let a dog see you scared because they could sense fear, so Robert made it a point to smile and talk friendly. They adored Art, that was for sure. Robert had a feeling they would defend Art to the death if necessary. Art gave Robert a tour of the post office. Not much to it, really. Just a small back room, an office, and a front counter. About 50 mailboxes adorned the wall in the front room, but most of them were unused. He explained to Robert that he would be taking over Owen's route and that Billy would show him the ropes. The pay would be $3.80 a week, probably a little less than he received making pianos, he said, but that was all he could afford. Plus, he would receive room and board at Art's house. Art was looking forward to that, he said. All he had were the dogs. His wife, Thelma, passed away a decade earlier. So Billy here is going to show you around and bring you back to the house in time for dinner. As Billy and Robert turned to leave for the tour, Art pulled Robert aside. Before you go, uh, I have a favor to ask of you, Robert, he said. He then told him about 
Abelia. could say is thank goodness for Google and the internet. Uh, when I first started writing this novel, it was in the mid-90s, and I really didn't have access to the internet. Um, I was a Prodigy user. Remember Prodigy? Yeah, it was like Bolton boards, stuff like that. And uh Google wasn't founded, actually, until 1998. And now, going through this novel and, you know, in the uh, preceding years and writing it, I don't know how I could have done it without the help of the Internet. And uh, this is especially true in this chapter. I have never driven um, old car from 1913. In fact, I really don't know much about cars. My dad was a car guy. My dad used to race. He raced Corvettes and always working on cars. My two boys love cars and, um, it must've skipped a generation. I know nothing about cars. So I needed to learn how these cars work. And so I found a lot on uh, a lot on the internet, and there are plenty of uh, instructional videos on YouTube in particular, and they have been a godsend, really. Uh, Henry Ford, who was known, of course, for the Model T and for the assembly line, started his assembly line process in 1913. And he was pushing out these Model T cars. Now, the Model T back then was basically just your standard chassis. And it came in two different models. He didn't have pickups. He didn't have delivery trucks or anything like that. There were other companies that would do that for you. There were companies that took the Model T chassis and turned it into something else. The self-proclaimed inventor of the pickup truck was a company called Galleon Godwin Truck Body Company, and they're the ones who put flatbeds on modified Model T cars. And so that's what we get in this chapter. We get a modified Model T, a 1913 edition. These things were four cylinders, 20 horsepower cars. And they weren't driven like cars today. There were three pedals down there on the floor. Uh, the right pedal was the brake. The middle pedal was the reverse pedal. And the clutch was on the left. You also had a lever um, on the left too that you would use with your left hand. And then the throttle, there's no gas pedal. The throttle is on the steering column along with a lever to adjust the spark that is going into the engine. It's a spark adjustment lever. 
the Model T went about 40 miles an hour. So that is pretty good. On lilacwinenovel.com, our website, I'm going to put up a couple of videos and some images. It's just really a cool thing watching these old cars run. And so if you want to see how these work, go ahead and go to lilacwinenovel.com. That chapter was a slightly longer chapter than my other ones. And this is Robert's introduction to Lily Springs. And I wanted to add some humor. I wanted him to meet Billy and Ellie, of course, and uh, the eccentricity of this small town. Next chapter, we're going to go back with Abelia, and then Billy and Robert are going to form a bond. They're going to do a couple of things. They're going to go fishing, jugging for catfish, and then Billy's going to take Robert one night out onto the riverboats where Robert is going to see Fate Marable, a famed early jazz musician. So look forward to that. If you have any questions or comments about this novel in progress, go to lilacwinenovel.com and let me know. I would love to answer your questions. Uh, love to respond to your comments too. If you are you know, liking what you're hearing or if you have a problem with how the narrative is going, you, know, you can let me know too. That would be fine. So thanks for listening. And I am Bruce Janu. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>